Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1,126, with a release and air date of Saturday, September 26, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1126 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The International Amateur Radio Union, Region 1, sounds the alarm on wireless power transfer for electric vehicles with its interference potential on the low bands. The Chinese foghorn and Russian over-the-horizon radars are only the beginning of some of the current intruders on the amateur radio low bands. We'll tell you all about it. Amateurs in Idaho help find missing children by monitoring for them on the family radio service frequencies. An upcoming Mars communications exercise will involve the amateur radio community. AMSAT announces its board of directors' election results. The Hera Arena, the former home of the Dayton Hamvention, is scheduled for demolition. The International Telecommunications Union releases the 2020 edition of the ITU radio regulations. The FCC grants Garmin a waiver to market a device with both Part 25 and Part 95 transmitters. And, according to the BBC, an old tube-type analog television receiver was wiping out a UK village's broadband signal every day at the same time. We will tell you all about this viral story in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will answer the question, what is a podcast index and why are there so many of them? Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLEB, will talk about having simplicity among the complexity. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill goes back to his early days in the hobby and recalls an amateur radio mystery entitled CQ Mars. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about how to build simple antenna mounts for your tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, where it's kind of warm this week, but the fall colors are starting to appear. I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our studios in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where leaf peeping has already occurred, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, where we haven't seen any leaf peepers yet, I'm Fred Fitty, November Fox, 2 Fox. And reporting from our News Bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where Autumn seems to have made herself right at home, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 
30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this week, International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 President Don Beatty, G3BJ, wants to raise greater awareness regarding the interference potential of wireless power transfer for electric vehicles, or WPTEV. He is urging IARU member societies to contact national regulators to make them aware of the technology's potential for RF pollution. Beatty notes that wireless power transfer for electric vehicles' chargers can run as much as 20 kilowatts. Wireless power transfer for electric vehicles was on the agenda for World Telecommunications Conference 2019. The International Telecommunications Union radio communication sector conducted studies to access the impact of WPTEV on radio communications and suitable harmonized frequency ranges. Those ITUR studies identified the 19 to 25 kilohertz band as well as bands in the 50 kilohertz and 60 kilohertz range for high power WPTEV and the 79 to 90 kilohertz band for medium power WPTEV. The consensus of WRC19 delegates was to make no changes in the International Telecommunications Union radio regulations with respect to wireless power transfer for electric vehicles. The Netherlands IARU member society Veron has posted the text of Beatty's remarks on this subject. The discussions about WPTEV have reached a point where they are moving from the technical to the political arena, Beatty said. Discussions with a national regulator indicate that we must now take action at the national level. The amateur service, but also other telecommunications services, will experience the consequence of WPTEV. Beatty urged members' societies in Region 1 to contact national regulators, preferably in person, to explain why radio amateurs are so concerned. He pointed out that large charging times in populated areas could generate harmonics that make radio communication very difficult. Models show that this also applies to the wider environment of a WPTEV installation, BD said. Broadcasters, stationary, and mobile services share these concerns and provided input to CEPT Electronic Communications Committee Report 289. Beattie noted that the WPTEV discussion has been going on for a long time. The technology is similar to that used for wireless charging of cell phones. The wireless charging of electric cars is done with large coils, he explained. One of them on the ground under the vehicle, the second in the car. Typically, about 22 kilowatts is transferred wirelessly through those coils. This is done using frequencies between 79 and 90 kilohertz. Technical and operational standards for WPTEV are under development. Wireless power transfer for electric vehicles developers are seeking noise level limits that are some 30 to 45 dB above current noise levels, Beattie said. Limits that have a serious negative effect on the radio spectrum, he asserted. In the interests of the future of amateur radio, we need to get the attention of national regulators, Beattie concluded. This is about the future of amateur radio. 
The Chinese foghorn over the horizon radar is once again showing up in the logs of the International Amateur Radio Union Monitoring Service in IARU Region 1, which covers Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. With more details on the story, we go to league headquarters in Newington, where Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, files this special report. While the reports reflect what's being heard by stations primarily in Europe, the same interference can and does affect other parts of the world, often depending upon the time of day. So named by former Monitoring Service Region 1 Coordinator Wolf Hedel, DK2OM, because of its sound, the foghorn was first reported operating in the amateur bands in 2017. Current Region 1 Monitoring System Coordinator Peter Jost, HB9CET, said significantly more OTH radars from the Far East were found during August, especially the system known as Foghorn. Jost noted that the Foghorn facilities generate a signal with a bandwidth of 10 kilohertz. The Foghorn was being heard on 40 meters in the vicinity of 7113 to 7123 and 7165 to 7175 kilohertz. Other over-the-horizon radar signals tracked to or believed to be in China are showing up elsewhere on the band with equally broad signals. Some international broadcasters also have set up shop in the amateur bands, including Voice of Broad Masses 1 on 7140, and Voice of Broadmasses 2 on 7180, both with 9 kHz wide AM signals. China Radio International has been transmitting at the very bottom edge of 20 meters, its signal slopping over into the amateur band. A radio war between Russia and Ukraine has generated signals on 40 meters, Russia on 7055, and Ukraine on 7060, airing what the monitor called very loud and persistent signals every day with, as he put it, plenty of abuse, propaganda, profanities, and agitation being passed back and forth. The Chinese foghorn signal is frequency modulation on a pulse with 66.66 sweeps per second burst. The Chinese over-the-horizon radar is also monitored at various other places on 20 meters. Russian Kontenyar over-the-horizon radar signals were spotted on several 20-meter frequencies in August. An idling signal at 14.221 kHz is believed to be coming from Kazakhstan, showing up every evening. A foghorn over-the-horizon radar has been appearing on 14.338 to 14.348 kHz. Amplitude-modulated radars with huge signals reported to be taking up segments on the 40- and 20-meter bands. A monster F-1B signal has also been heard on 14.301 kHz. The role of the International Amateur Radio Union Monitoring Service is monitoring the amateur bands to search and identify transmissions sent by intruders. This is important because of the amount and variety of intruders is rapidly growing, the IARU said. A number of national monitoring coordinators and volunteers have been watching our bands for many years but more needs to be done to raise the awareness of societies and countries where no national monitoring team exists. Also, existing groups can still help by sharing detailed information worldwide with others. Their motto is, monitoring is teamwork. The IARU said it's important that many member societies as possible file interference complaints with national regulators whenever intruders are heard. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
Late on the afternoon of September 16th, the police department in Post Falls, Idaho, received a 911 call that two juveniles, ages 9 and 11, were missing from a Post Falls residence for about an hour. With more details on this story, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files this report from League Headquarters in Newington. According to the report, the pair had left home intending to play in the neighborhood with some family radio service, or FRS radios. Police were dispatched to the area to conduct a visual search, and Detective Neil Urig, K7NJU, responded as officer in charge due to his training and experience with missing persons investigations. The initial search focused on a two-mile radius from the missing kid's residence. One officer received information from witnesses that the pair was probably using FRS Channel 1. An officer returned to police headquarters to retrieve some FRS radios for distribution to the patrol officers in the event they might be able to hear the youngsters talking. Checking into the Northwest Traffic Net, Urig explained the situation to Net Control and asked if Net participants in the Post Falls area with FRS capability could listen for the youngsters talking. It was assumed that only stations located near the missing youngsters would hear them, given the limited range of FRS radios. Not long after 7 p.m., Jim Hager, KJ7OTD, reported hearing children talking on FRS Channel 1. Patrol units were redirected to the new search vicinity. A short time later, the missing pair was found safe and returned home. Lurick said the most remarkable thing about the incident was that the missing youngsters turned out to be some distance from the original search area and in the opposite direction from where they were thought to have been headed. Urig, meanwhile, pulled out his VHF-UHF handheld with the thought of setting up FRS Channel 1 as an auxiliary frequency, but without the manual at hand, he wasn't able to execute the channel setup. But Urich did hear the Northwest Traffic Net that had begun at 6.30 p.m. on the local 2-meter repeater. Net Manager Gabby Perry, KE7ADN, said, I'm so proud of what a superior job Northwest Traffic Net NCS Shannon and all the operators did last Wednesday. It was a very unusual situation, but everyone had excellent focus and used their resourcefulness to help quickly find the missing kids. The Military Auxiliary Radio System, better known as MARS, will have volunteer amateurs taking part in the Department of Defense Communications Exercise 20-4, starting on October 3rd and concluding on October 26th. For more details on this MARS operation, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files this report from League Headquarters in Newington. The Mars focus is interoperability with ARRL and the amateur radio community. Army Mars Chief Paul English, WD8DBY, said Mars members will interoperate throughout October with various amateur radio organizations that will be conducting their annual simulated emergency tests with state, county, and local emergency management personnel. Mars members will send a DOD-approved message to the amateur radio organizations recognizing this cooperative interoperability effort. Mars members will also train with the ARRL National Traffic System and Radio Relay International to send ICS-213 general messages to numerous amateur radio leaders across the U.S. 
English said the exercise will culminate with Mars members sending a number of summary messages in support of a larger DOD communications exercise that takes place October 20th through the 26th. Throughout October, Mars stations will operate on 60 meters and WWV and WWVH will broadcast messages to the amateur radio community. English assures no disruption to communications throughout the month-long series of training events. After counting the ballots, AMSET has announced its board of directors. In order of votes received, Mark Hammond, N8MH, with 707 votes, Paul Stetzer, N8HM, with 703 votes, and Bruce Page, KK5DO, with 667 votes, were elected as AMSAT directors for terms ending in 2022. Stetzer, a former board member and current executive vice president, fills the seat being vacated by AMSAT veteran Tom Clark, W3IO. Howie DeFelice, AB2S, with 550 votes, was elected as first alternate director. And Bob McGuire, N4HY, with 534 votes, was elected as second alternate director for terms ending in 2021. Jeff Johns, WE4B, received 429 votes. Hara Arena is on the schedule for a planned demolition. The Dayton, Ohio building that since 1964 has symbolized one of amateur radio's biggest international gatherings, the Dayton Hamvention. Hara Arena, already deteriorating by the time it was left damaged by tornadoes in May of 2019, had been the home to the Hamvention until 2017, when it was moved to the Greene County Fairgrounds in nearby Xenia. The arena property will be rezoned to allow for manufacturing and distribution use once the legendary building has been taken down. The International Telecommunication Union has published the 2020 ITU Radio Regulations, which represent the international treaty governing the global use of RF spectrum and satellite orbits. The publication contains the complete texts of the radio regulations adopted during World Radio Communication Conference 2019, held last year at Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Available in all six of the International Telecommunication Union's official languages, the 2020 ITU radio regulations are in effect for all signatory parties on January 1, 2021. Electronic versions are free, and the traditional four-volume box set, as well as a multilingual DVD, will be available for purchase in the coming weeks, the ITU said. The publication of the radio regulations is the culmination of the hard work and intense deliberations that took place during WRC-19, said ITU Secretary General Haolin Zhao. Efficient and economical use of the naturally limited radio frequency spectrum is key to ensuring we bring the benefits of connectivity and digital transformation to people everywhere. The ITU radio regulations are a vital vehicle for this endeavor. The ITU said that, when it comes to allocating radio frequencies, including sharing and harmonizing their use for different purposes, the radio regulations are the ultimate tool. They ensure the use of the RF spectrum is rational, equitable, efficient, and economical, all while aiming to prevent harmful interference between different radio services, the ITU said. The ITU radio regulations also play an important role in promoting access to affordable broadband for all, the ITU said. The radio regulations govern 40 
radio communication services and are designed to protect existing radio services while enabling the introduction of new and enhanced services. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The FCC has granted the request of Garmin International for a waiver of Section 95.2761 of the FCC's rules permitting it to obtain equipment certification for a handheld unit that combines a low-power terrestrial Part 95 multi-use radio service transmitter and a Part 25 emergency satellite communication module in the same device. The FCC responded to Garmin's request in an order released on September 21st. Section 95.2761 subpart C precludes combining multi-use radio service transmitting capabilities and equipment that is also capable of transmitting in another service, with the exception of Part 15 unlicensed services. The FCC said it determined that it would be in the public interest to waive Section 95-2761 subparagraph C so that Garmin may obtain authorization to produce its proposed handheld device. We find here that Garmin's proposed device contains an important public safety feature which would not be brought to market if it were strictly to enforce the rules in this case. As Garmin noted in its request, the certified Part 25 module in the multi-use radio service unit would allow emergency communication to the outside world at the push of a button. Garmin's proposed product would include two transmitters, a low-power multi-use radio service transmitter for short-range terrestrial communications, and a previously certified Part 25 module that would allow emergency communication via the Iridium satellite system under a blanket license held by Iridium, and users would have to subscribe to the Iridium service. Garmin argued that in its petition that the purpose of the original equipment authorization restriction was to prevent consumer confusion with other terrestrial services that either had different licensing regimes or were for different types of communications and that it is inappropriate in this case. We agree with Garmin that its device intended does not flout the purpose of Section 95-2761, Subpart C, the FCC said in its order. Garmin maintains that the Part 95 multi-use radio service transmitter and the Part 25 module operate on different frequencies and will not operate simultaneously. Provided the device is constructed in this manner, we are persuaded that its dual purposes will be well segregated. AMSAT Oscar 7, or AO7, the oldest amateur radio satellite still in operation, is nearing a return to full illumination by the sun, which should take place around September 25th and continue until around December 26th. For more details on operating AO7, we go to League Headquarters, where Rick Lindquist, WW1ME files this report. AMSAT Vice President of Operations Drew Glassbrenner, KO4MA, says that during this period, AO7 likely will switch between modes A, 
two meters up and 10 meters down, and B, 70 centimeters up and two meters down every 24 hours. Glassbrenner reminded users to use only the minimum necessary power and to avoid ditting to find their signals in the passband. He said that can bounce the entire passband up and down and sometimes even causes the transponder to reset to mode A. Last May, the nearly 46-year-old A07 made possible a contact between Argentina and South Africa, a distance of more than 4,300 miles. Both stations were aiming at just 2 to 3 degrees above the horizon. Launched in 1974, AO7 surprised the amateur radio community by suddenly coming back to life in 2002 after being dormant for nearly 30 years and only periodically re-emerging. AMSAT considers AO7 semi-operational. Theory is that AO7 initially went dark after several years of operation when a battery shorted and it returned to operation when the short circuit opened. With no working batteries now, AO7 only functions when it's receiving direct sunlight and it shuts down when it's in the dark. Try to find yourself with very low power or on SSB or best with full Doppler control, Glassbrenner said. If you have to use high power to find yourself, your receive antenna and system probably needs improvement. Built by a multinational team under AMSAT's direction, AO7 carries a non-inverting Mode A transponder 145.850 to 145.950 MHz up, 29.400 to 29.500 MHz down, and an inverting Mode B 432.180 to 432.120 MHz up, 145.920 to 145.980 MHz down linear transponder. It has beacons on 29.502 and 145.975 MHz, used in conjunction with Mode A and Mode B-C, low power Mode B, respectively. A 435.100 MHz beacon has an intermittent problem switching between 400 MW and 10 MW. ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, has appointed Phil Temples, K9HI of Watertown, Massachusetts, as the New England Division Vice Director. He succeeds Mike Raisbeck, K1TWF, who was elected earlier this year as ARRL First Vice President. President Roderick has made the appointment after consulting with the New England Director Fred Hopengarten, K1VR, and the region's section managers. I want to thank all of those who forwarded their recommendations to Director Hopengarten, Temple said. Mike Raisback left some big shoes to fill. I look forward to working with Fred and to advise and assist him with the various tasks and board committee assignments. One task I'm especially eager to tackle is launching a New England Division website. An ARRL Life member, Temple's has been licensed for 50 years, initially as WN9EAY in Indiana. He's written articles for QST, contributed articles for the ARRL website. He also recently co-authored a chapter in the Amateur Radio Public Service Handbook. Temples served three terms as Eastern Massachusetts Section Manager and is now an Assistant SM and an Assistant New England Division Director. 
He's also held ARRL field appointments as Affiliated Club Coordinator and Public Information Officer and serves as Program Chair for ARRL's New England Division Convention. Temples has been active in Mars, the National Safe Traffic System, and is an Emergency Coordinator. He enjoys CW and holds a degree in Electrical Engineering from Purdue University. Temples has actively promoted instruction and licensing and is a volunteer examiner under ARRL, W5YI, and Greater Los Angeles ARG Volunteer Examiner Coordinators. He's currently involved in the New England Amateur Radio Incorporated in administering remote exam sessions during the pandemic. Temples is employed at Boston College as a computer systems administrator. Jim Brown, K9YC, reports that the Northern California Contest Club has been holding its meetings using the Zoom platform since March, like a lot of other clubs, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Brown says response has been overwhelmingly positive. He points out that the NCCC's membership circle includes members as far north as Humboldt County and as far east as northern Nevada, as far southwest as Santa Cruz County, and as far southeast as the Sierra as well as the San Francisco Bay Area. Over the years, he said, traffic had increased driving time to meetings even within the Bay Area, so that meetings rarely drew more than about 40 members. Zoom meetings are regularly drawing 75 to 85 members, Brown said. An informal chat session starts 30 minutes ahead of the formal meeting, and 20 to 30 members often stay around for up to two hours after the meeting is adjourned. As we reported last week, Brown was named the 2019 recipient of the ARRL Technical Service Award. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Coming up, how podcasts work and how best to subscribe to them. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, welcome. Good to see you. I stumbled upon podcastindex.org earlier today and it piqued my interest. I was under the impression I could access all podcast shows and apps, but apparently not. From what I understand, there are multiple podcast indexes out there, which all have different content? Yes and no. So podcastindex.org is a venture from Adam Curry, the podfather, one of the early, uh, in fact, perhaps the earliest podcaster. Adam uh, was instrumental in getting RSS feeds to be amended by Dave Weiner, the creator of RSS, to include audio files or any binary blob, but audio files or video files is what makes it a podcast. So podcasts, the definition of podcast is uh, like this, an audio show you can download, you can listen to or watch, doesn't have to be audio, I should say any show, <laughs> audio or video, here you are watching me if you're watching the video, uh, that you can download. But the key is that there is a directory, an RSS, or really simple syndication feed, that is updated whenever there's a new show. Why is that good? Well, there used to be a lot of RSS readers out there. Google Reader, the best known, but there were a great many of them. 
there we've gone through the great RSS winter. But in the in 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when podcast first started, people would follow uh, the RSS feeds of their favorite blogs in an RSS reader. Instead of going to the website of the blog, they'd go to the reader and they'd say, when there's a new blog post, they'd see it there and they would read it. So what Adam convinced Dave Weiner to do is add audio or video files to that so they could also go to their RSS reader and they'd see, oh, there's a new version of the tech guy available, new edition of it, and they could press the play button and listen. It wasn't very long before dedicated podcast applications were written, and they worked the same way as a as any RSS reader. Uh, you would subscribe to the podcast, usually by typing in a URL, and then from then on, whenever the podcast was updated, the podcast client would download the podcast so you could listen to it. In the early days, it was most commonly iTunes. So people would set up iTunes with a subscription. The podcast would be downloaded. And then whenever they synced up their podcast, their iPod, remember that? You had to plug it in to your computer and you'd sync it up and it would copy the podcast over to their iPod and they could then listen. We've come a long way. Nowadays, almost all podcast consumption comes over phones, but still people often use podcast clients and there are a lot of them the number one is still itunes but pocket cast is also very popular perhaps you use overcast or stitcher or slacker maybe use the apple podcast app or the google podcast app these are all applications that are really just rss readers that subscribe to the rss feed of the podcast and whenever there's a new show download it so you can listen to it subscribing to a podcast really just means download it whenever there's a new one. Keep an eye on it whenever there's a new one, download it. All right. So why do we need podcast directories? Well, every podcast app has a directory. If you go to Pocket Casts or Google Podcasts, you'll see suggested podcasts. You'll see a list of podcasts. You'll see a search. All of that is a directory that is provided by the podcast client. In the case of Google, it's all the podcasts available in the Google Play. Uh, in the case of Apple, it's iTunes. It's all the podcasts available in iTunes. And the reason Adam started Podcast Index is because some podcasts have been blocked. Alex Jones, for instance, is blocked on iTunes. You can't find his podcast searching the iTunes directory. I suspect it's the same with Google Podcasts and probably most other podcast clients. So Adam says he wants to create a uh, a podcast index free of corporate entities, influence, and finance. Don't censor me. Well, it is true that directories are an important way that podcasts get discovered. For instance, if somebody told you, oh, Leo Laporte has a podcast called Ask the Tech Guy, you might open your podcast client and search for Ask the Tech Guy. And if it's not in that directory, you wouldn't find it. But this is an important point. <laughs> you wouldn't find it in podcast index either because... It's not using Podcast Index. I think Adam's idea is maybe he's going to create an index that future podcast clients will use. But most podcast clients, certainly Google and Apple, the two big ones, are they? there's some editorial control. That's They do control it. They are gatekeepers. And they're not going to use Adam Curry's directory. They're just going to keep using their own directory. The good news is the iTunes directory is easy to get into if you create a podcast. One of the very first things you're going to do is go to the iTunes podcast section and add your podcast. 
And what you're adding, by the way, is the address of the feed. The feeds usually end with XML. That's the format that RSS understands. But there are some other extensions. But that's, that's the key. Now, I have to tell you, that's not the only way to find a podcast. And so what I'm going to show you today is if you know you want a podcast, yeah, you could look in the podcast directory. But you should never be stopped just because you didn't find it. For instance, uh, you won't find Alex Jones' podcast in there for a variety of reasons. But you can always Google it. And that Google directory is a little different. It's a lot harder to get kicked out of Google. Usually it's not because of politics or fake news or misinformation. If you're kicked out of Google, it's probably because you tried to game Google's search index. That's not so nice. But in most cases, most podcasts are not doing that. So if you Google search, for instance, the Alex Jones podcast, you're going to find a number of entries in fact, probably the next best thing was to add RSS to that. And that'll take you directly to, you see that, the RSS feed. Now, if you see that button that says RSS and click it, this is an RSS feed. You're not going to really want to use that. That's not designed to be human readable. But you see, it really is a listing of all the shows. What you really want is this. This is the address. That's what we're going to type in. Now, to add that or any podcast that you found that way, once you find the XML file, the RSS feed, now it's an easy thing to do to launch the Apple Podcasts app. And this will work on any device. They kind of hide where you would add this, but I'm going to show you how to do it on Apple's. And you'll see it's it's very similar on most podcast apps. This is the directory, right? This is Apple's directory. And by the way, I should show you, if I search Apple's directory for Alex Jones, and you can read up on why, you won't find Alex. Oh, you'll find Joe Rogan. You'll find Surreal Talk. You'll find Louder with Crowder. You'll find other podcasts, but you won't find Alex Jones' actual Oh, well, maybe you will. I take it back. So it is in the directory. Is this an actual Alex Jones podcast? I thought he was... Yeah, that's somebody else's who's trying to ride on his name. So, which is not unusual. That's another reason why these directories are not ideal. Anybody can get in these directories. So no Alex Jones podcast, but that's no problem because we already know what the feed is. If we go to the file menu for the podcast app, you'll see add a show by URL. Now, this will have some discovery features. So even if you don't have the actual XML feed, you can often just paste in a web page and it'll find it. But watch, I'm going to paste in the Alex Jones feed, press the subscribe button. Ah, and now I have it. That He is in my library now. So that's all you really need to do is paste that URL in. And again, that URL is not necessarily in every directory. But it's almost always going to be in Google. So the trick if you want to find a podcast and you don't see it in your directory is to Google the podcast name and maybe RSS feed and find the actual link. We at Twit, we actually have a page dedicated to RSS feeds. It's our subscribe page. So if you go to twit.tv slash subscribe, some links. So for instance, here's Ask the Tech Guy. And you'll see links to audio and video. Now, we do link directly into Apple Podcasts. That is not an RSS feed. That's a link into their directory or Google Podcasts or YouTube. But you'll notice you'll also see this button that says subscribe via RSS. You're looking for that. And there it is, that familiar gobbledygook that's RSS. But there's the feed address. And that's what you want 
which is feeds.twit.tv slash atg.xml. You could enter that address into any podcast client. I'll show you what it looks like on the uh, iPhone because it's a little bit different on the iPhone. You're looking for a way to enter in a URL directly. So because I've added this, by the way, on my Macintosh, you see the same podcast is there. I'm going to delete that because I don't, I don't really want to get that podcast added. So I'm going to delete that from my library. But how would I add an arbitrary podcast? If I, if I do a search and I don't see it, well, I can uh, always go to my library. So click the library tab, hit edit, and that's where you're going to find the magic. Add a show by URL. And you can type in or paste in uh, the URL for the RSS feed and subscribe to it and you'll get it. So you can do this manually quite easily. Well, but maybe not as easily as in a directory. So why do we even have podcast directories? Well, certainly every app should have a directory. And in the perfect world, every app would have a directory that includes all podcasts. But frankly, there are so many podcasts, hundreds of thousands at this point. You can't expect a Pocket Cast or Overcast to have a complete directory. It'll have a directory of popular shows, shows that people who use the app use uh, or listen to on a regular basis. It'll probably be in there. Usually that directory is sorted by the most popular based on that particular application's listenership, that kind of thing. But in no podcast app that I know of can you not always manually enter a show. So find the show's feed, its RSS feed, paste it in, and now you're subscribed. The good news is you won't have to ever do that again. And if you use a podcast app like Apple's or Pocket Casts or Google's that automatically syncs it to your account and makes it this, you know, subscribe once, subscribe everywhere, you won't have to ever worry about it again. It'll be on your phone, it'll be on your computer, it'll be on all your devices. I think Adam probably is, I don't know why Adam's creating this. I think his heart's in the right place. He says, you know, why shouldn't there be an index of every podcast? But understand, in order for that to work, every podcaster in the world has to add their podcast to that Adam Curry's podcast, index.org. And by the way, that's not the only one. There are dozens of these. We get solicitations all the time from people who say, add us to our, add, add you, add yourself to our podcast index, add yourself to our, and frankly, I don't see the advantage. I want to be on iTunes. I want to be on Overcast. I want to be on Pocket Cast. We are. But I don't really care that much if I'm on a bunch of random podcast directories that nobody ever searches or looks at. If you're on Google, oh, by the way, you should have a website. And if you're creating a podcast, make sure somewhere clearly on that website is your RSS feed, maybe a button or a link that says, here's our RSS feed, so that somebody looking for you can find your website and find that feed and add it to their client. So to answer your question, I'm not sure why Adam has created this. I think it's probably not necessary. Adam has done something similar in the past. You may remember Pod Show, which became Mevio. He calls that a podcast network, but really his goal was to get every podcast in the world on that thing. That failed. And uh, maybe he's trying to do it again. I don't know. We'll add ourselves to Podcast Index, sure. But I wouldn't say that it's a necessity for anybody. It's it's not necessary. Does that make sense? And there's a good way to, to subscribe to podcasts so that, you know, it is a free speech thing. As long as a podcast has an RSS feed, anybody can subscribe, anybody can listen, and no one can stop you. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech 
Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The summer of 1977 was good to me. I was living alone in the family homestead thanks to my parents, brother, and sister's move to Albany, New York to accommodate my father's promotion. I had my first real job as a dispatcher in the Buffalo Police Department 911 system where I was making big money, $10,000 per year. I had a beautiful girlfriend who had not yet morphed into the shrieking, blood-sucking creature from the planet Psycho. I had a VW bus full of all the latest radio equipment, and I had a close circle of ham radio friends with whom I had nightly QSOs that would last for hours. A few notes on these hams. Like myself, they were in their mid-twenties and just starting their careers. Unlike me, they were still entrenched in hippie land. Because of my job at the police department, I had short hair, was clean-shaven, and wore a uniform. They, on the other hand, had long hair, beards, and dressed in rags held together by dirt. They also indulged heavily in the use of the dreaded illegal weed, marijuana, otherwise known as pot. I avoided this deadly hemp because, one, I had seen reefer madness and knew what even a single puff or toke could do to me. Two, I worked for the Buffalo Police Department. And three, my dad was our narcotics investigator for New York State and would disembowel me if I ever was caught smoking the stuff. Despite our differences, we got along great in person as well as on the air. Our CUSOs were always within the parameters set by Part 97, However, because we often discussed controversial political, social, religious, and economic issues for hours at a time, we talked on either 2-meter FM simplex or on 10-meter AM using converted CB rigs. Since we all live within a 2-mile radius of each other, this was easy to do, even with a 2-meter HT or a converted CB walkie-talkie. One ham in this group deserves special attention. Let's call him Dave. Dave had the longest hair, the scruffiest beard, the most ragged clothes, and indulged in the forbidden weed more than the others. He lived for a time in his 1965 Pontiac. Later, he got a room in a dilapidated rooming house. Dave had many bizarre theories and beliefs. Paramount among them was his firm conviction that UFOs existed and aliens from other planets not only were watching us, but actually walked among us disguised as humans. He devoured every book and article he could find on the subject. His favorite TV show was The Invaders, and his favorite novel was The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. 
Gabe had memorized every passage in the Bible he believed was a reference to UFOs and aliens. He would talk for hours on the 2-meter simplex or 10-meter AM frequencies about them. Dave had a simple explanation for their presence. The aliens were waiting for just the right time to harvest us. According to him, Earth was merely a giant ranch, and we were the cattle waiting for our eventual slaughter. Dave was determined not to become the main course at an intergalactic barbecue. He had a simple two-step plan to ensure his survival when harvest time came. First, he would contact the aliens by radio and convince them he was their friend. Second, he would offer his services to them in any manner they wanted, from helping them to capture earthlings to guarding humans in the intergalactic stockyard. Dave offered no apologies for his position. More than once, in our nightly QSOs, he would tell us, Yes, you are my friends and fellow amateurs, but when the time comes, I have to do what it takes to save myself. You can see why we kept our conversations off the repeaters. We asked him, Dave, how will you contact them? He had the answer. In 1899, according to him, Nikola Tesla claimed to contact Martians by wireless. Dave was convinced that it was no coincidence that Tesla's extraterrestrial QSOs took place at the same time that the War of the Worlds was published. Furthermore, Dave had a QST magazine from 1969 that described the Elser Mathis Cup. Hiram Percy Maxim, W1AW, the first president of the ARRL, had come up with this award in 1928 to be given to the first radio amateur to have a QSO with Mars. Apparently, Maxim believed there were Martians. In Dave's mind, if Wells, Tesla, and Maxim believed in Martians, that was good enough for him. Dave didn't actually believe there were Martians. Instead, he was convinced that aliens from other solar systems or galaxies were using Mars as their base of operations. Dave would contact the aliens on Mars, convince them of his loyalty, and, at the same time, win the Elser Mathis Cup. Okay, Dave, we said with a straight face. What frequency will you use to contact them? Dave had an answer for that also. As any serious shortwave listener knows, the planet Jupiter emits a huge amount of RF radiation. These RF emissions are strongest on Earth between 20 and 30 megahertz. On a good shortwave radio, when Jupiter is above the horizon and the ionosphere is dead, the signals from Jupiter sound like waves in the ocean. Dave was convinced that these signals actually contained embedded messages to the Martian outpost. He believed that this was the primary RF window for the aliens. He would use either 15 meters, 10 meters, or 11 meters CB to contact them. Dave spent many hours combing the frequencies between 20 and 30 megahertz with his realistic DX-150A shortwave radio. He had a CB radio going 24-7 on channel 9, 27.065 megahertz, not as a member of React, but because it was a quiet frequency to hear any potential message. When we were on 2 meters, he would ask us to QSY to 10 meters. Once there, Dave would sing praises to the aliens and offer his services. Dave and I had many 15 meter CW contacts on our Heathkit HW16 rigs. Dave said it was to keep our code speed up, but I knew better. I must digress at this point to present some facts that will put the rest of the story in perspective. 
As I stated, my parents moved to Albany, leaving me behind. They would hold off for one year on selling the house in case the Albany job didn't work out. This was a huge, old, creaky Victorian house built around 1880. In the basement, there was a portrait of a stern, forbidding woman in 19th century garb. When I was about eight years old, my dad told me she was the first owner of the house and had died in the master bedroom. I don't know if that was true, but the picture filled me with terror as she stared at me from beyond the grave. The third floor was originally the servants' quarters. It was now an apartment occupied by students at the nearby college. My job was to watch over the house and the tenants. The students graduated in May of 1977 and moved out. The apartment was rented for September, but for now I was the only one in the house. Just me, my black cat, Scamp, and the portrait in the basement. One night, while in my bedroom on the second floor, I heard sounds coming from the vacant apartment. A loud thud, like someone dropping a bowling ball, and then a rumbling sound like the ball being rolled across the floor. Scamp jumped off the bed, arched her back, and hissed loudly at the connecting door to the third floor. That was it for me. I ran down the stairs and slept on the living room couch. I eventually set up the ham station on a table near the couch. I only went upstairs to take my showers, and then only in the daytime. Scamp, who always loved the beds upstairs, now avoided the second floor completely. One night, I was asleep on the couch. It was a hot, oppressive, moonless night, and the house was completely dark and completely silent. Even the roving bowling ball was quiet. Suddenly, right in my ear, a flat, emotionless voice said, CQ Mars, CQ Mars. I opened my eyes in terror. Again, the voice said, CQ Mars, CQ Mars. I was literally paralyzed with fear. I tried to move. My body did not respond. Worse, I couldn't breathe. I could feel myself suffocating. The voice spoke in my ear once more. CQ Mars, CQ Mars. But this time, the voice gave a call sign, and I heard a squelch tail. Instantly, I could move and breathe again. I sat up, my heart pounding, and gasped for air. As the oxygen flowed back into my brain, I could hear Dave calling his mournful CQ. With trembling hands, I picked up the mic on the 10-meter rig and said, Dave, what are you doing? It's 3 a.m. I'm calling Mars, came the quiet reply. At 3 a.m. in the morning? What better time, Dave replied. During the daytime, the signal would simply radiate towards the sun. At night, it will go to Mars. Let me tell you something, I replied, still shaking with fear. The aliens don't need your help. All you're doing is drawing attention to yourself. They will find you and eat you first. As soon as I said it, I realized it was the wrong thing to say. I don't know if Dave believed me or was just offended at my statements but he didn't respond. I called him again and apologized, but there was no response. Dave was off the air for a couple of weeks. 
When he returned, he was more subdued. He never mentioned the aliens again and wouldn't discuss the topic. Shortly thereafter, he lost his job, was evicted from the rooming house, and apparently disappeared. I never spoke to him again. Within a few months, our simplex group disbanded, and we went our separate ways. My parents sold the house, and I moved to Albany. On my rare trips to Buffalo, I would ask about Dave on the local repeaters. No one had heard from him, and, as the years passed, fewer and fewer hams even knew who he was. The call book showed no updated call sign or address, and his call eventually disappeared from the database. With the passage of time, I've forgotten Dave's last name, and internet searches show nothing on his call. Did he believe me? Did I somehow convince him that his actions just made him the early bird special in the eyes of the aliens? Did he just move somewhere else and continue his quest? According to the latest information on the ARRL website, the Elser Mathis Cup is still at League Headquarters waiting for the first Earth to Mars QSO. Did Dave give up on his quest? Or was he successful in making the prized contact only to be captured and eaten before he got his QSL card? As I write this, it's almost midnight. I'm not alone in my house as I have two Bichon Frise dogs, three cats, and my 18-year-old daughter to protect me against roving bowling balls and haunted portraits. My Yesu FT-817 is on the shelf, tuned to the 1010 net frequency of 28.8 MHz. A CB walkie-talkie is next to it, tuned to 27.065 MHz. Both frequencies are quiet. No sound, not even waves in the ocean. I'm listening for that plaintive call, CQ Mars, CQ Mars. I'm hoping to hear it again. I miss you, Dave, wherever you are. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. This is W2XBS with a propagation forecast for Saturday, September 26th. Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, reports that up until September 23rd, we saw 32 consecutive days with no sunspots. Then, new sunspot group AR2773 appeared, which has a magnetic signature indicating it's part of new solar cycle 25. Spaceweather.com noted that it was a weak one and may not persist for very long. The daily sunspot number for September 23rd was 13, indicating three sunspots visible in that group, but the sunspot was gone the next day. Average daily solar flux rose from 69.2 to 71.1 over the September 17th to 23rd reporting week. Geomagnetic indicators were about the same, with average daily planetary A index declining from 5.3 to 5.1. 
As of September 23rd, the predicted solar flux for the following 45 days was 73 on September 24th through October 1st and 70 on October 2nd through November 2nd. Here's the AMSAT report from Bruce Page, KK5DO. AMSAT completed its election process for the year. Elected to the board for two years were three incumbents, Mark Hammond, N8MH, Paul Stetzer, N8HM, and Bruce Page, KK5DO. The first alternate is Howie DeFelice, AB2S. The second alternate is Bob McGuire, N4HY. Alternates serve for a year. A total of 1,231 ballots were cast. Thanks for that information to Brennan Price, N4QX, AMSAT Secretary. If you're a grid chaser, URI, UT1FG stroke Maritime Mobile is back on the GoldenEye and is sailing from Columbia to Jacksonville, Florida. This is your opportunity to work him for some wet grids. If you do work URI, you can request your QSLs by following the procedure at papays.com stroke sat. If you worked somebody successfully on PO101, you can request a QSL card from the command team as a token of appreciation for using the satellite. Visit twitter.com stroke D-I-W-A-T-A-2-P-H for more information. Foundations of Amateur Radio My radio shack consists of two radios, identical, well, inasmuch as that they're the same model, a Yaesu FT-857D. Their memories are different, their microphones are different, but both of them are connected via a coaxial switch to the same VHF and UHF antenna. One of them is also connected to a HF antenna. Let's call these two radios Alpha and Bravo. Alpha is used to host F-Troop and play on the local repeater. Bravo is used to do HF stuff. It's also connected to a computer via a serial cable called a CAT cable, Computer Assisted Tuning, but really a way to control the radio remotely. The audio output on the rear of the radio is also connected to the computer. These two connections are combined to provide me with access to digital modes like PSK31, Whisper and SSTV, though I haven't yet actually made that work. The computer itself is running Linux and depending on what I'm doing on the radio, some or other software, often it's FLDigi, a cross-platform tool that knows about many different digital modes. The computer is also connected to the internet via Wi-Fi and is used to see what various reporting websites have to say about my station, things like propagation, the DX cluster, an electronic way of seeing what other stations can hear, and there's the solar radiation information and other neat tools. This shack is pretty typical in my circle of friends. I'm lucky enough to have a dedicated table with my shack on it. For others, they're lucky to have a shelf in a cupboard, or at the other end of the spectrum, a whole room or building dedicated to the task. The level of complexity associated with this setup is not extreme. Let's call it in the middle of the range of things you can add to the system to add complexity. In case you're wondering, you might consider automatic antenna switching. Band switches, band filters, amplifiers, more radios, audio switching, automatic voice keyers. If you look at the world of software-defined radio, the hardware might include many of those things and then add a computer that's actually doing all the signal processing, making life even more complex. At the other end of the complexity scale, there's a crystal radio. As I've been growing into this field of amateur radio, it's becoming increasingly clear that we as a community, by and large, are heading towards maximum complexity. 
There's nothing wrong with that as such, but as a QRP or low power operator, I often set up my radio in a temporary setting like a car or a campsite. Complexity in the field is not to be sneezed at, and I've lost count of the number of times where complexity has caused me to go off air. It occurred to me that it would be helpful to investigate a little bit more just what's possible at the other end of the scale, at the simple end of complexity, if you like. So, I'm intending, before the year is out, supplies permitting, to build a crystal radio from scratch. I realise that I have absolutely no idea what I'm getting myself into, no doubt there'll be more complexity than I'm anticipating, but I'm getting myself ready to build something to be able to look at it and say to myself, look, this is how simple you can get with radio. I'm currently too chicken to commit to making the simplest legal transmitter, but if you have suggestions, I'll look into it. Just so you know, simplicity is an option. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. I wanted to take some time to cover some of the common topics related to installing antenna systems on towers. First, let's examine designing and installing an antenna mount for the side of a smaller tower, like the one in your yard. I have built a few homemade mounts out of scrap pieces of steel, usually built from a three-quarter inch steel pipe about three feet long and three steel bars about one to two inches across, maybe a quarter inch thick. Material like this can often be purchased off the shelf from your local hardware store or welding shop. You will need to climb the tower to measure the sizes and dimensions of the tower, legs, and diagonal members where you intend to mount the sidearm you're building. If you do not have access to a welder, have the shop weld together the mount with the ends of the straps onto the pipe, with about a, a foot between the straps, which would be centered on the three-foot pipe. This will give you about a foot above and below the straps onto which you can side mount or end mount an antenna. Pre-drill the holes for U-bolts to mount the straps onto the tower legs. Then also do the same for the U-bolts at the furthest end of the straps from the mounting tube. This mount should be set across one entire face of the tower so it can be hinged inward during mounting or servicing. After the mount is set in place and the antenna is set on the mount, the third support strap can be clamped to the mount and tower to reduce wobble. This is not a suitable mount for a wide tower unless you intend to mount the antenna close to the tower. The most common rule for mounting distance is one half wavelength from the closest face of the tower. If done properly, would make the tower nearly electrically transparent to the incoming or outgoing signals. If you draw a sine wave on a piece of paper, you'll notice that the voltage at one half wavelength is zero. This is why we prefer to mount antennas at multiples of one half wavelength. At two meters, that equals one meter out, or 39 inches from the antenna to the closest face on the tower. Imagine the sidearm necessary for six meters. At 224 megahertz, it equals about 24 inches for a half wave distance. If you have done all your measurements accurately at the mounting site, you can assemble the entire structure on the ground and make sure it all fits before taking any of it into the air. Since my homemade mounts usually weigh less than 15 pounds, I usually carry them up the tower with me, set them in place, then bring up the antennas and feed lines. This plan would change depending upon the height of the tower, 
other antennas on the tower, or how you feel about carrying cargo up the side of the tower safely. Sometimes it's easy, other times there would be too much risk of touching other active antennas, which would make hoisting the mount and antenna by rope from the ground necessary. It is obvious here that pre-planning is essential to ensure safety and reduce the number of trips up and down the tower. While I have promoted the idea of wearing cargo up the tower, I'm the first to admit that limiting trips on the tower and hours on the tower are the real goal in any job I do. Limiting both man hours and movement will also limit the risk of death, which is cool. I've seen a few different methods of securing amateur sized coax to a tower leg. The most common I've seen is regular plastic electrical tape. The biggest problem with electrical tape is its lifespan. Mother Nature works to remove the sticky from electrical tape within the first half year. I've also seen cable ties used. As far as I know, clear or white cable ties are not made to survive sunlight, ozone, or Mother Nature's worst, which limit these to about seven months or less, especially if they are flexed regularly. I think the black cable ties are the best for outdoor mounting. Lastly, I've seen 12-gauge solid wire with insulation cut to 5-inch lengths and wrapped around the tower leg and coax, then twisted. I know this type of scrap material to hold coax to a tower leg for decades with no visible sign of aging. I have also seen a black cable tie over several layers of electrical tape. And coax can change size and length during the day, so always allow for these changes. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. For more information, you can email me at fmgreg at yahoo.com. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Citizen science has proven invaluable to researchers at the University of Reading in their search for a more accurate way to forecast coronal mass ejections. Thousands of volunteer participants in the Stormwatch Citizen Science Project have been sending researchers their observations about previous CME images captured by special wide-angle cameras on spacecraft since the project began in 2010. The scientists then combined these observations with their own forecasting methods, making use of the additional information. According to an article in Science Daily, this model increased accuracy of solar storm predictions by 20%, supporting researchers' theory that the inclusion of imaging cameras on future space weather monitoring missions by ESA and NASA would be beneficial. The team also found that forecasts uncertainty was reduced by 15% as a result of the volunteers' input, which provided a better sense of the trajectory and shape of the solar storm. The K1A special event will run September 25th through October 5th from 2200 to 0500 UTC 
headquartered in Ames, Iowa. It is sponsored by the Amateur Radio Software Award Committee. Frequencies planned are 7.190 and 14.260 MHz. The special event station provides innovative free and open amateur radio software, the sponsor says. The 2020 Amateur Radio Software Award recipient, Andy Good, and his K3NG Arduino CW Keyer Software Project will be honored during the event. Nominations for the 2021 awards will also be encouraged. The Amateur Radio Software Award is an annual international award for the recognition of software projects that enhance amateur radio. The award aims to promote amateur radio software development, which adhere to the same spirit as amateur radio itself. Innovative, free, and open. QSL via Amateur Radio Software Awards, Special Event Station, Post Office Box 126 Ames, Iowa, 50010-0126. Include a self-addressed stamped envelope. Contact Klaus Nielsen, AE0S, for more information. While the leaves may be coming down from the trees, antennas are still going up. That means fallout, the good kind, the annual autumn portable operating event, hosted by the 100 Watts and a Wire podcast. This year it's taking place on October 9th, starting at 0000 UTC, and concludes on Sunday, October 11th at 2359 UTC. The exchange is simple, call sign, state, province or DX country, true signal report, and your 100 Watts ID number. Sure, you can operate from your shack if you'd rather stay indoors, but if you operate portable, you get the added benefit of testing your equipment and your readiness for next year's field day. There are other extras too. Contacting bonus stations will let you get extra points, and at the end of the event, submit your totals and be automatically entered into a random drawing for prizes. One of them is a complete QRP station. To qualify, stations must have a minimum of 25 contact points and be in the continental U.S. For more details, visit the website 100wattsandawire.com. A German research university is working on an ultracapacitor specialist in Estonia to develop what scientists are calling a groundbreaking graphene battery. They're calling it the super battery. While it's not energy dense enough to be a replacement for lithium-ion batteries, it's being eyed as complementary use. Skeleton Technologies in Estonian and Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany say the battery will have a charge time of 15 seconds with hundreds of thousands of charging cycles. The rapid charging time is being attributed to the battery's use of Skeleton's patented curved graphene carbon material. And finally, we can't leave the air this week without covering this story that went viral all over the internet for the past few days. This from the BBC. The mystery of why an entire village lost its broadband every morning at 7 a.m. was solved when engineers discovered an old analog television was to blame. An unnamed householder in Aberhosen Poes was unaware the old set was emitting a signal which would interfere with the entire village's broadband. After 18 months, Engineers began an investigation after a cable replacement program failed to fix the issue. The embarrassed householder promised not to use the television again. The village now has a stable broadband signal. 
OpenReach engineers were baffled by the continuous problem, and it wasn't until they used a monitoring device that they found the fault. The householder would switch their TV set on at 7 a.m. every morning, and electrical interference emitted by their secondhand television was affecting the broadband signal. The owner, who does not want to be identified, was mortified to find out their old TV was causing the problem, according to OpenReach. They immediately agreed to switch it off and not use it again, said engineer Michael Jones. Engineers walked around the village with a monitor called a spectrum analyzer to try to find any electrical noise to help pinpoint the problem. At 7 a.m., like clockwork, it happened, said Mr. Jones. Our device picked up a large burst of electrical interference in the village. It turned out that at 7 a.m. every morning, the occupant would switch on their old TV, which would, in turn, knock out broadband for the entire village. The TV was found to be emitting a single high-level impulse noise. Mr. Jones said the problem has not returned since the fault was identified. Suzanne Rutherford, OpenReach Chief's Engineer Lead for Wales, said anything with electric components, from outdoor lights to microwaves, can potentially have an impact on broadband connections. We always just advise the public to make sure that their electric appliances are properly certified and meet current British standards, she said. And if you have a fault, report it to your service provider in the first instance so that they can investigate. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on amateur radio repeater systems, streaming on the internet, or on great low-power FM broadcast stations like WGXC-FM, part of the Wave Farm on 90.7 MHz in Akron, New York, serving Greene County and the southern regions of New York's Capital District. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.